this Sunday is the second of two Sundays that kind of go back to back, looking at Paul's missionary journeys, a dominant figure in the New Testament. Last week we looked at uh, missionary journeys one and two, and this week we're going to look at missionary journeys three and four, although if you're a good Sunday school scholar, you will think, hang about, weren't there only three? I want to show uh, this morning, and this is where we'll end up, so when I get onto this, you can think he's coming into land. Don't uh, hold your breath. Um, But when we get to this bit, that there'll be a journey that looks anything like a missionary journey that turns out to be Paul's most effective missionary moment. And uh, we'll explore uh, why that is when we get there. So we're in chapter 18, a few verses before where Margaret started to read to us. Page 1115, I think it was. Be great to have it open in front of you so that you can see what we're talking about as we go. So Acts chapter 18 and verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, after his second missionary journey, he has a good rest. God calls us to work out of rest, not to work until we're exhausted and grab what we can, but he uh, rests there in Antioch. Paul set out on what would be the beginnings of his third missionary journey and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You'll notice, if you were uh, wide awake last week, that Paul is yet again going back to the churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. These were going to turn out to be the most weakest of all the churches that Paul would plant, because these were very dependent churches. As we said last time, he found himself going back there on several occasions in order to strengthen the disciples uh, and the church there. They remained very weak and dependent upon him personally for their life together. It's that unhealthy dependence that Paul tried to alter, excuse me, over his subsequent missionary journeys. When a church becomes dependent upon its leader or leaders, it cannot grow beyond the capacity of that leader. It stands to reason. These churches remained weak because they were too dependent on Paul and were unable to grow beyond the capacity of this one's man's or this one man's ability to visit them. They had not become proficient at sustaining themselves, at providing for themselves, and crucially, for a missionary movement, reproducing themselves. Most churches that we know as churches today have been established along the first journey principles. They are always in danger of becoming too dependent on their leaders. I was trained as much as you can call it training, what happened when I went to college, to be a leader in a church like this. In fact, it was to be a leader in this actual church, although neither you nor I knew it at the time. Otherwise, we all might have done something about it. But I was trained to be a leader that does the ministry that you as a congregation support. I was trained in many ways, to create a a dependence, to create an environment where you depended on me to do the stuff by providing for you and in some ways doing it for you. So if someone wants to become a Christian, 
Christian, quick, get Simon. He'll sort them out. If someone needs prayer, quick, get Simon. He'll pray for them. If someone needs communion, quick, get Simon. He'll do communion with them. And of course, I will in all three cases and many others. And to be sure, you call me the minister. And uh, even though as Baptists, we have this phrase that encapsulates what we're supposed to believe, which is the priesthood of all believers which means that we believe that everyone in Christ can do everything for Christ as Christ calls them. We have inherited a model that whilst we believe that and we'll even teach that, we've inherited a model that functionally isn't too far off me being the priest. If we remain in this mode... We're in danger of being like those first missionary journey churches. Too dependent, disproportionately dependent on the leaders. And like them, we'll struggle to reproduce ourselves because I can only be in one place at one time. You okay with that statement, the last one? Oh, good, right. The sudden quietness made me wonder. So what happened with these churches, and we're going to move on in a sec, but it's worth pausing. What happened with these churches is that they bottlenecked with their leader, Paul. What will happen with this church, it'll bottleneck with their leader, not named Paul. And what you could do, okay, is get rid of me and appoint a greater capacity leader. And you would grow a little bit more if that leader could embody slightly more capacity. But then you'd bottleneck again. And that's the situation that these leaders, churches, sorry, found themselves in, in an unhealthy, dependent way. I'm not saying that we don't need leaders, but we need leaders that release ministry rather than leaders that do and therefore keep hold of the ministry of the church. Missional church leaders release ministry. Missional church leaders release ministry. And as we saw last week, Paul was adjusting his strategy through subsequent missionary journeys in order for the churches to become quicker and more effectively self-sustaining. And that was to be really important. It wasn't until this third missionary journey that Paul moves right into his sweet spot. Sometimes I take the boys to the golfing range. I know nothing about golf other than there's a club, a ball, and you're supposed to get it in the hole. The good thing about the golfing range is that nobody worries about the hole. And that suits me just fine. I get the biggest club I can pick up. And the only other thing you have to do is whack it as hard as you can, right? And I've discovered that whacking it as hard as I can, most of the time, causes the ball to go... But very occasionally, and I don't know why it happens yet, very occasionally I will whack it with all my strength and I can only describe it as a sweet spot. The ball goes, woo, miles, 500, 600, 700 yards. <laughs> and I can't believe it. I haven't applied any more effort, same effort. Paul's first missionary journey was a lot of effort. He's not going to give himself any less. This is not about a walk in the park for him. But what if that effort landed on a sweet spot? 
What difference would that make? This third missionary journey, we find Paul in his sweet spot. And before we look at it, we need one more building block in order to understand what's going on. So Paul's on his way to Ephesus. He's gone back to these other churches that are too dependent in order to shivvy them on a little bit, longing that they would become self-sustaining and reproducing. And he's heading now to Ephesus. And we get a little window in Acts chapter 18 of what's been going on in Ephesus while Paul's traveling towards it. Meanwhile, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Good lad. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, brilliant, and he spoke with great fervor, excellent, and taught about Jesus accurately, brilliant. All those are good things, though he knew only the baptism of John. Hmm, interesting. What's he telling us, Luke, by slipping that in? 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and so on. On arriving, he was a great help to those uh, uh, who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. What a great egg. Now, as soon as Paul gets to Ephesus, he exposes something that's missing, something absent from the ministry of Apollos. You see, Apollos was in so many ways a solid, orthodox, passionate, educated Jesus man. And we love those people when we find them. People that serve Jesus, love Jesus, honor Jesus, understand the scriptures about Jesus, and long to live for Jesus. But we've also met Christians that, like Apollos, are solid about Jesus, good, orthodox, evangelical, but know nothing of the Spirit. And they're usually hard work in churches. Jesus said, you see, we need the Holy Spirit. It's not that we don't need all the things that Apollos brings. Amen to every single one of those. But Jesus said what you'll also need is the Holy Spirit that will bring the reality of Jesus to bear on your life. My biggest problem is not understanding truth about Jesus, it's having that reality to live it. And the more I understand about Jesus, the more I'm aware that what it's really about is living the Jesus life, not understanding who Jesus was and understanding and being able to articulate, even teach, the Jesus life. In fact, Jesus said the same thing. He said, look, you're going to go out, and you're going to be my witnesses uh, uh, in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, And go off and do that, but when the Spirit comes, then it'll be really great. What Jesus actually said was, it's not on the slide, but what did he actually say? W? Wait. Wait. You cannot do this without the Spirit. It doesn't matter how sorted we are about Jesus. You will never live the life without the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Missional church is Spirit-empowered. So we asked them this question. He found some disciples. Acts 19, 
1 to 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. When Paul placed his hands on them, this is verse 6, he sorts it out. Uh, The Holy Spirit came on them, it's as easy as that, just a prayer, and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Missional church is spirit-empowered. And what's the evidence, ultimately, that the Spirit is empowering us? It may well be that we'll speak in tongues, and it may well be that we prophesy, and I'm delighted about both of those things. But in the end, the evidence that the Spirit is burning in our hearts is that we will not help ourselves, but become missional. Because that's why he came. And so Paul says, if we're going to do anything here in Ephesus... We've got our teaching about Jesus all sorted out, but now we need the Spirit's power. And perhaps some of us can relate to that uh, today. If he's going to create an environment where every believer, priesthood of all believers, where every believer is an agent for God's mission, then every believer will need the Holy Spirit. And you might say, as I was talking some moments ago, but how can I lead anyone to Christ? How can I pray for someone? What on earth gives me the right to share, to break bread with someone and to share wine with someone, remembering the death of our our Lord Jesus and the resurrection and looking together with them that he's coming again? What gives you the right? The Holy Spirit in you. That's the deal. The Holy Spirit gives you that enabling to be that minister. And the greatest theological truth, not the greatest, a great theological truth, tucked in at the beginning of Acts, when, Paul, uh, when Luke describes what happens with the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter gets up and he prophesies from the, uh, he, he um, speaks out some words from the Old Testament about a, a prophecy there, uh, and these are the words. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, And just in case you missed it, we'll go for sons and daughters, we'll go for young men and old men, we'll go for servants, and we'll go for men and women, and that pretty well covers it. I will pour out my Spirit. That is heaven's declaration that all of us are agents of this missional movement. You do not need to be dependent on me to minister for Jesus Christ. Because you're more than capable of doing it all yourself because the Holy Spirit is in you. Let me let you into a secret. You will be better at it than me if you let the Holy Spirit sort you out quicker than I let him sort me out. The race is on. Yeah? Now, you're looking nervous and you, sh- and you should be. And you should be, because this is a typical church day. You're all sitting there, and I'm running around like a headless chicken. Okay, time to share it out. Do I get an amen? amen. Oh, from a few people. Thank you, my brother down the front. I, he sees it from my side of the fence, I know. <laughs> okay, so, um, you see, there's nothing new in any of that teaching, okay? We have championed that as Baptist believers. Many churches would stand on the things that we've just been sharing, but we have acted and behaved and organized ourselves as if something else was true. And I'm sorry about that. And I want to do all that I can to see that change. 
And you might say, well, there's self-interest in that. Well, deal with that. I'm longing for Jesus' kingdom to come. This is about what God wants to do in us. You see, I'm longing. I'm longing for you to baptize someone that you've brought to Christ. How cool would that be? That's what I'm longing for. You know, why should I get to do it? I'm longing for someone that you have brought to Christ, prayed for, journeyed with, discipled, that the day you send them out and pray for them as they move out into a new mission that God's got for them. I long for the day when, when you are, 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 are sending people or planting a church or leading a church. Now I've said that, that you are planting a church. Now, I don't mean trustees, meetings, buildings, and Sunday services. Although it could be that. But I mean planting a people who will worship God up towards God, who will gather in to encourage one another to live like Jesus and then send each other out. That's a church. I long for you to lead churches with 15, 20, 25, 30 people in. And then another one and then another one, and then another one. And he said, well, I can't do that. I haven't been trained. Hey, I haven't been trained to do that either. They trained me for something else. And and we can argue about that, so let's not get stuck there. The disciples had no training that we think that we need. They just knew what it was to be with Jesus, and they had his spirit. And we have to believe. This is probably the hardest thing, to believe that every one of us, with the power of the Holy Spirit, can do this stuff. Glad I got that off my chest. You see, a missional church knows that every Christian can reproduce the whole. We're going to see that in just a moment. It's so exciting, isn't it? You see, it's exciting for me uh, and exciting, I hope, for you. But it requires us to do church like we believe that it's true. Bring on the missional community. Like we can do this together. And it will result in a new kind of growth. You see, Missional Church believes in multiplication rather than um, in addition. You see, what we've tended to think about in church life is, uh, here's me as a blue blob. Okay? And, and with all your help, okay, I try and help someone come to Christ. So when someone is remotely interested in God, you say, I'll come to church, Simon will sort you out. Okay? Um, And this strategy, by the way, isn't really working. But occasionally it works, okay? Uh, And we get somebody. Big cheer. And we're delighted about that. That lasts us a couple of years of excitement, that does. Okay? Uh, And then then maybe we'll get another one. Yeah, good, you're getting the idea, right? Good, like that, okay? But to be honest, it's not very successful as a strategy, partly because... I'm trying to win your friends when the Bible says it's your job and I can't win my friends because I'm busy trying to win yours. So, so we're kind of stuck. What if we had a, and this is an addition strategy, okay? We're, we're, we're adding and we're grateful for everyone, aren't we? Every one of those is someone saved from hell into an eternal destiny with Jesus. How cool is that? Okay, that's not to minimise that at all, okay? But what if we went for a different model? It could start with me, but it could just as easily start with you. Okay? Uh, And you go, okay, I'm going to win somebody for Christ. Big cheer. 
Okay? Say you do three, just to get us going, yeah? You run out of energy already? No cheers for three? Only one? Okay, right, okay, you've got the idea. Okay? And you notice at the end of the Bible, Jesus says, go into all the world and make... Then what does it say? Baptize them. Then what does it say? Teach them. Thank you. Teach them to what? Obey a little bit. Andrew, everything, everything I've commanded you, right? So what if I won three people, let's, let's talk about me just for a moment, but it could just as easily be you. If I won three people for Christ, and then I thought, well, what I'm going to do, I'm going to pour my life into these three people, and I'm going to help each of them win three. Because the Bible tells me not just to make disciples, but then to go on and teach disciples to obey everything. And everything means being reproducing, doesn't it? Everything means sharing the mission of God's kingdom that came in Jesus. So you get three, and, and you do that with this one as well, and we do that with this one as well. And because they've learned that it's not just winning someone, it's pouring your life into them that they win somebody else, and they win three. Okay? And you can see, you've got the idea, right? And so we go, and so we go on. Out here, you've got lots going on. Now, if 40 of us did that, and we won three in a year, and taught them to win another three, we would reach the whole world in my lifetime. The whole world. Now, I've got to be honest, I haven't got enough faith that Burlington's going to reach the whole world, okay? Uh, But you can see how if we go for a multiplication strategy, our reach into what God wants to do out in the world will be massively more effective, wouldn't you agree? But that means that each of you need to be released as ministers. Not in the minister way that we've taught everyone that the minister is all about, but in a missional way that Paul does here in his third missionary journey. So we've been racing ahead. Let's just pull all this back for a minute. And I don't wish to oversimplify it or or, or make it that that's easy. But imagine if that was just a little bit effective it would always be massively more effective than that one. Okay? So, a Bible's still open. Hope you're still there in Acts chapter 19. Paul's about to do something quite different. Acts chapter 19 and verse 8. Here we go. Paul entered, uh, verse 8, where are we? Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly, Uh, there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Nothing new about that. You're absolutely right. Uh, Verse 9. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. There was triumph and... Opposition. There was power and pain. There was tragedy and triumph all mixed in together. That's what we talked about last week. So nothing unusual. What happened next is a significant change. So Paul left them. Uh, Here we go. Uh, The end of verse 9. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So, who did Paul take? The disciples. Who's he having daily discussions with then? Who's he spending his time with? What was the result? Verse 10. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word 
of the Lord. How did the whole province of Asia Minor hear the word of the Lord? Well, what do disciples do? Paul knew that like Jesus, a disciple is not someone who learns intellectually about knowledge, but a disciple does do that and then learns to live out the life of the rabbi. So Paul is teaching these disciples not just, you know, the ways of the scriptures, not just the head knowledge, but he's teaching them how to live the Jesus life. And they go out of the hall of Tyrannus and they have a go. That's the model that Jesus offers us, isn't it? Jesus, there's thousands of people here and they're all hungry. Jesus says to his disciples, you feed them. Huh? It's not the way we've understood it in most churches. So this idea that that, that, that there's uh, a transference, not just of knowledge, but of a whole way of living, and out from this uh, core group of people where Paul invests his time and his energy, people are going out and sharing the word of God wherever they went. So for two years, Paul huddled. Aha, aha, interesting word. Paul huddled those disciples in Ephesus. And so they became reproducing disciples themselves. That's what a huddle is. We use the term huddle here about being intentional and intensely creating a discipleship environment where people are challenged not just to learn about some truth, but to go out and live it and embody it. Uh, Reminiscing on all of this period of time in Acts chapter 20, So after Paul's left Ephesus, he meets up again with the Ephesian leaders and they have a kind of little chat about what was going on. And and, and so Paul reminds them about these two years and he says, you'll remember that I didn't stop preaching and I taught you publicly and from house to house. So there's all kinds of different ways Paul was getting involved in their lives and teaching them. And he said that he was always with them day and night. You see, a missional church is a disciple-making church. Isn't that interesting? That for two years, Paul puts a lot of effort into making disciples, and it's his most effective missionary journey. That's not all he was doing. Remember Jesus, 18 months doing the stuff, 18 months developing his disciples. Paul was the same. While he was developing those disciples, he was also still out there doing the stuff. You know, ministers, myself included, can give you the impression that we can talk about what we all need to do, and neither you nor I need to do it. We need to be out there doing the stuff in order to model it, to empower it to other people. And reminiscing about that same period of time in Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. In other words, you saw my whole life. You could see me living. You, you know where I lived. You know how I spent my days. You know how I uh, went out preaching the gospel. You know how I prayed for people. You, you could see my life because a missional church models discipleship. And that's what Paul spent his time doing it. And, and we desperately need that. I understand that that's what we desperately need. And I understand that you need, to get, you need me to get off my backside and get on with modeling some stuff Uh, and you need to do the same so that we can model it to each other in a new kind of way I, I don't I don't need people to tell me about what I should do anymore I know what I should do don't you I need people to really show me I don't need you to tell me I I've got to pray more I need to be around people that have really learned to pray 
I, I don't need you to tell me I've got to read my Bible more. I know that. I need people that are passionate about God's word and it lights a fire in me. I, I don't need to be told I need to share Jesus. I need to be with people that have learned to share Jesus naturally and powerfully so that I can embody what I can learn from them. And we need to create that modeling environment. And uh, Huddles is a little pilot into that, and we want to spread that all out in these coming months and years. How, how, do, we, how, how do we model the, the stuff that Jesus is asking of us? So Paul himself went out on mission, and it's quite a good story, verse 11 of, of chapter 19. So he's not only discipling them, he's also getting on with the stuff, he's also modeling it to them. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, that's not bad for a morning, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Some Jews, now Ephesus was the center of black magic. Excuse me. So spiritually, it wasn't a walk in the park. Ephesus, the center of black magic. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Next bit's really funny. Seven sons of, uh, of a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who on earth are you? I'm uh, freewheeling just a little bit. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Not a very effective missionary strategy. Because a missionary strategy requires an authentic church. A missionary strategy requires an authentic church. So compare what happens next. Verse 17, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now, so they had believed but had not got their lives sorted out yet, many of those who had believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And there's archaeology, uh, archaeological evidence for this. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread. So, uh, a missional church, what's it doing? It's looking for a genuine, a true change of heart. A number who had lived that way were willing to be vulnerable and open enough to say, look, I've lived that way, but it's, it's useless. The real power is in Jesus. An authentic church, a missional church, is an authentic church looking for that real change. What was the evidence that Zacchaeus had really changed? Was it when he said he was sorry? But it was when he paid back four times what he'd stolen from other people. Real change. And what happens when you get a missional church that celebrates real change in people's lives, which is what we're going for, the word of the Lord continues to spread. That's not a bad thing, is it? Okay. Let's speed up in the story and get ourselves uh, to land in this final story in just five minutes. And if you believe that, you believe anything you like. So there's a bit of a riot then after two years in Ephesus, a bit of a riot. Paul leaves Ephesus and uh, uh, chapter 20 of Acts, you can see it there, verse 17, he calls the Ephesian elders together and they kind of realize that it's the last time that they're going to see each other. It's a very moving moment in the story and uh, uh, we haven't got time to look at that in detail, but Paul's basic message is you've got the Holy Spirit, guys, you can get on and do this. I'm not coming back. 
And it wasn't they were sad, I don't think that he wasn't coming back. It was just Paul had invested in them. And now he was on his, and now he was on his way. And that brought the third missional journey to an end. So into that fourth missional journey, which what happened then is Paul went off to Jerusalem. There were a few riots, things didn't go very well, and Paul's arrested. And he's taken as prisoner eventually to the great city of Rome and remains a prisoner almost for the rest of his life. It might be that he has a few uh, months or a year or so of freedom and then is rearrested and then he's beheaded. So, humanly, not a great scenario. You would almost be forgiven for thinking that Ephesus was the glory days and now it was all downhill from then on in. But Paul thought of it very differently. Paul had always longed to preach in Rome. He told the Romans that when he wrote to them in a letter. Paul knew that God had promised that he would one day preach to kings. So even though he was arrested, he still had faith that God's purpose would still be carried out. In fact, one night when he was under a lot of pressure, the Lord spoke to him and said, it's okay, Paul, you will go to Rome and you will preach the word of God there. And Paul was strengthened in that. And in fact, we know that Paul did go to Rome, even as a prisoner, and the effect of the gospel was such in Rome that even Caesar's Uh, members of Caesar's household came to Christ. And Paul writes about that when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. He sends greetings from those who belong to Caesar's household. So if you don't know the story, then read the rest of Acts. There's a shipwreck. Paul plants a church while he's there just for good measure, just for something to do, to pass the time. And then he ends up in in, in Rome. Where, under house arrest, He puts into practice everything that he'd learned in Ephesus. And instead of this time, it's saying that the word of God spread through the whole province. It says that the word of God spread through the whole world. To all the Jews and Gentiles. In other words, Luke's saying, however effective you thought Ephesus was, this is massively more effective now, what Paul's doing coming out of Rome. And he writes to the Philippians, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Imagine that. This is a man in chains. You can't go where he wants and do what he wants. The man that that did all those miles on that first journey, now incarcerated. And he writes later of his time, he said, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. And so this amazing final testimony that a missional church sees opportunity everywhere, I find this the most challenging. Because I always think to myself, if my circumstances were different, it would be easier. Okay, so this is the hardest one for me. I always think that if the opportunities were different, it would be easier. Now, I don't mean in my ministry here, but I mean in Simon, the normal walking everyday Simon. Forget what I do for a minute. Think of the opportunities, the circumstances were different. If I had more time. Anyone relate to that? See, if I had more time, I could do all this stuff, couldn't I? Do you know what? Unless God's changed my heart, if I had more time, I wouldn't do it. And neither would you. In love, of course. You see, it's not in the end the circumstances. It is the position that we adopt that God's spirit in me makes it possible. So whatever circumstance you might be saying, 
Well, if that was different, or when that gets sorted out, or when, or if, or but, or... Maybe the when, or the if, the but, the circumstance you're in now, is exactly the place God's called you to be missional. Because mission starts here and now. If it doesn't start here and now, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, then it doesn't start. And I realize that that is a really hard thing for probably all of us. But there he is. That's how we leave the book of Acts. He sees the opportunity everywhere because that's what a missional church does. And finally, a missional church is unstoppable. For two whole years, Paul stayed there and uh, he welcomed people. That was a cunning strategy, wasn't it? Can I just have a few visitors, please, Mr. Guard? Yeah, that seems harmless enough. An empowered disciple walks back out the door and goes and makes a difference in some other part of the world. And this is the final verse of Acts, boldly and without hindrance. Notice the the joke, the tongue-in-cheek. He's in chains, or at least he can't go outside his house. Boldly and without hindrance. What a play on words. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what for you is, is kind of is the real hard bit. It's about your circumstances or, or about the belief that you could do it or, or, or even the, the desire or, or I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what the stumbling block is for each one of us. But we've got to talk about them. We've got to share them. We've got to, we've got to overcome them. We've got to be honest about our, our weakness that we can maximize our strength. Lord, would you just come by your Holy Spirit? even as we just sit here this morning. You just come, pour out your spirit upon us. Breathe on us, breath of God. With tongues of fire, like fires in our hearts, we pray. May new passion burn in us, stir us into, in all that we can be because your Holy Spirit is in us. Help me to know that it's not someone else's responsibility, but I can be that first person that wins another person and teaches them to win somebody else. I can do that. That's God's call on my life. Because the Spirit's been poured out on all people. And increase, Lord, that collective sense that there must be more than this. Help us never to fall into the trap of thinking if our situation was different, if Ipswich was more open to the gospel, how different it would be. Paul did what he did in Ephesus, the center of black magic. He did what he did in Rome where the idols towered over the empire. Lord God, awaken in us your missionary spirit. And fan into flame a passion for your name.